We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. One of the things I think that's important um, that, that we recognize is that every time we gather, you could have been anywhere or you could have been nowhere, but you chose to be here. And that's a big deal. And so being here, um, it's, it's important. It's important to be a part of the family of God. Um, and so tonight, we are going to continue our series. We, we're finishing up the solos. Does anybody, we'll kind of have a, a little bit of a review. We've been talking about over the past couple of months, the five solos, which if you had to pick the five basic tenets of theology, five things that unless you believe these five things, this would, this, this, these five would define Orthodox Christianity. Now, we could go into a lot of other doctrines and a lot of other theology, but these five would be a base level for what it would take for someone to be a genuine believer. So let, let's talk about those five. Let's just have a little bit of review. Um, some of you have been here for the whole study. Some of you may, this may be your very first time, and that's great, because um, tonight's going to be a standalone Bible study, but it's part of a, a little bit bigger series we've been doing. So does anybody remember the, the first sola? Does anybody remember the first sola? Sola Scriptura, that's exactly right. Or, and that means, what is Sola Scriptura? What is that? Scripture alone, or the Bible alone. That We're talking about that the Bible is the only authority that is inerrant, infallible, and inspired. It's authoritative over our lives. Why did we say that Sola Scriptura was the very first of the solas we needed to study? Why, does anybody remember why we start, started with a defense of the inerrancy of God's Word before we went anywhere else. Anybody want to take a, take a guess? Maybe you remember. Why did we start with Sola Scriptura? That's right. If we, don't, if, if we aren't sure about what we believe about the Bible, then if we study any of the other solas, it's only going to be about what the Bible has to say about those things. So if we can't trust the Bible, then we can't trust any other doctrine. So absolutely, when we... Um, and it also defines the theology of our church. It defines the theology of the pulpit ministry here. It is that we are not only Bible-believing, but that we believe that the Bible is inspired. It is different from any other book. There is no other book in human history, no matter how wonderful, no matter how popular, no matter how much you enjoy reading it, that has divine inspiration that is behind it. So, absolutely. So, Sola Scriptura. Anybody remember what was next? the next sola grace alone grace alone we are saved Ephesians 2 8 and 9 by, by grace through faith this not of ourselves so that no man could boast when we say grace alone the differentiating factor between what a true born again redeemed believer what they believe and what anybody else that is in any other camp believes is that you believe that it is nothing you can do to earn God's favor that God gives you his favor by his grace that that grace is undeserved hence it is grace which is why it is amazing and that you cannot be saved any other way than it being a free gift of God so it is not only scripture alone but it is grace alone. What was number three? Faith alone. Faith alone. That you have to express faith to be able to be saved. And God grants us the ability to place our faith in Him, but it is a faith that we must 
exercise. So certainly faith alone. And then for the last couple of weeks, we have been studying what it means when we say sola Christus or Christ alone. And we have looked at the last couple of weeks at two scriptures specifically when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And Acts 4 and 12, there's no name under heaven by which men must be saved than the name of Jesus. So when we say Christ alone, we were very clear last week in explaining that there is no other way unto salvation. That there's no other way to get to heaven. There's no other name someone can call on. There's no other God. Ignorance is not an excuse that you absolutely need the gospel. And the gospel is hinged on the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone. So absolutely, those are the four. Tonight we go into probably when you when you took a sum of all four of those things and brought them to the to apex, you would get what is the fifth of the solas, which is what? God's glory alone. The glory of God alone. Or some people may, or, or it is phrased, sola de gloria. God's glory alone. Now, when we are talking about the glory of God, we hear about that quite often, but what is the glory of God? When we say the term glory of God, what are, we, what are we talking about? What is the glory of God? If you had to define the glory of God, how would you define it? It's character, okay, good. Anybody else? Character, what else about? His majesty, his character. The glory of God, and, and it may even be cheating to use this, but... To say, to say it this way, but it, if you had one attribute in which to describe God, I would argue that glorious would be the one you should use. And here is why. Because God's glory is the sum total of every attribute of God. So when we talk about that, that He alone is what? Worthy. He is worthy because He is glorious. And the reason that He is glorious is that when we talk about His faithfulness, when we talk about His grace, when we talk about His mercy, when we talk about His purity, when we talk about His righteousness, when we talk about His holiness, when we take all the sum totals of the attributes of God, when we say that He is omnipotent or all-powerful or omnipresent and everywhere, those are all descriptors of what make up the glory of God. So to say that our God is all-glorious is that He is in per, that he is perfect in every attribute that he has. One of the things that's important in defining the glory of God is you cannot have God fully glorified if there is an attribute that is left out. I would argue to you, and, and we're going to study this specifically this week uh, when we're in 1 Kings 18 and we're studying the life of Elijah, but there are many people who believe that God is glorified when we only lift up certain aspects of His attributes, but never highlight other aspects of His attributes. Let me give you an example, modern day example. There is much talk about the love of God. There should be a lot of talk about the love of God. There's very little discussion about the wrath of God. There's a lot of discussion about the grace of God, but there's very little discussion about the justice of God. There's 
very much discussion about the goodness of God, but there may be much less discussion about the purity and holiness and of God. So when we talk about the sum of those attributes, that's what we're talking about when we say that God is glorious. So you, you see a question there that's on your listening sheet to guide our time together. And th this may not be something that, that jumps off the page at you as a memory that you have, but I, I've asked a, a question, and that is, have you ever beheld, encountered the glory of God? Now, be careful as we answer this, um, because even in the Old Testament, people could not behold the glory of God without falling dead. So I'm very careful when we talk about this because oftentimes we hear people talking about that they had a vision of God. I don't know that your eyes could handle a vision of God. And I think sometimes we have too dim a view of just how awesome and terrifying the very presence of God would be. So when we say, have we ever beheld the glory of God? If you can remember, even Moses had to hide himself in the cleft of a rock when the Lord passed by. And that was Moses. When he came down, Moses, just from having been in God's presence, was so shining with the Shekinah glory of God on his face that the people couldn't even look on Moses just from having been in the presence of God. And so as we talk about have we experienced the glory of God, there will be a day when God in His full glory, when you will witness that. And you will witness that because all sin will have been completely removed in your life when we are glorified. We are justified, right? We're justified when we are saved. We are sanctified as we become more like Christ. And one day we will be glorified, either by death or by rapture. All sin will be removed and we will be in the glorious presence of God without sin or stain, and we will be able to behold Him in all of His glory. But in minute glimpses, it should be that throughout the course, especially of a believer's life, that we have beheld the glory of God and we behold it in small measures. Um, I can remember um, vividly, vividly I have this memory. I can remember um, I was... I was 11 years old, and I was standing on a pier um, in, on, the, on the Gulf Coast. And I had walked out on this pier, and it was about 30 minutes before um, sun, the sun was going down. And you could look out over the Gulf, and you could see the sun setting on the water. And that is the first time in my life that I ever remember for myself having the thought, how could anyone not believe that God is real, that God is there? I remember being completely overwhelmed and embarrassed. Now you say embarrassed. At 11 years old, you don't, I didn't even know how to process that emotion. I can remember standing there and thinking, how incredible it was and just being overwhelmed that I don't know how anybody could view this and not believe that there is a glorious creator. There have been other times in my life where I have beheld the glory of God in parts, but in different ways. Um, some of the times that, that we hear very seldom talk about people beholding the glory of God, but if you experience the conviction of sin that leads you to repentance, it will be because you beheld the glory of God. Now, let me ex explain this to you. I believe one of the reasons that revival tarries in churches 
is because we are not beholding the glory of God. If we beheld the glory of God and we saw how righteous He was, what would that in turn show us about ourselves? You cannot behold the glory and perfection and holiness of God without in turn also rendering to yourself that you are not glorious. And so because of that, creating a new vision of God and a new thirst for Him. So one of the most beautiful pictures in Scripture we find of someone beholding the glory of God, we find in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Um, if you haven't turned there and you'd like to, to be, go there in your Bible, I invite you to do that. But before I read this, I, I want to make a very important point. We behold God's glory sometimes in times and in places where we do not expect to behold God's glory. Let me tell you a little bit of a testimony before we read this because you're folks that need to hear this. If you were here this past Sunday morning, it was absolutely spectacular. It was spectacular when the glory of God falls on a place. It was spectacular to see what God did in this place. Um, and sometimes we don't even realize, and I get to have just a very minute few of these conversations, but in this past week, I was reached out to by several people about some things that God did that maybe nobody was even aware of in the midst of that. And one of those, um, um, I, I thought this was a powerful testimony. I, I don't know that I would have drawn this out of the worship service, but I appreciate this so much. Young lady, um, young adult, reached out this week, sent me a message, and said, I have never in my life felt closer to a church than I felt Sunday morning. And here's how she explained this. I thought this was fantastic. She said, I have a lot of scars and a lot of things that have happened in my life. And sometimes when I come to church, I'm able to believe Satan's lie that I'm the only one that has junk. But Sunday, I realized even though I didn't know everybody's story, I looked out and saw tears all the way across the place and I realized that I'm not the only one that hurts. And that's a, for all of a sudden, I not only felt comforted by God, but I fell in love with His church. That's beholding what the only the glory of God can do. Not just when we are convicted of sin, but when God uses His Word in a supernatural way to bring conviction and comfort and cleansing and all the things that He does. But many times when, if people have truly beheld the glory of God, <clears throat> it is when their lives have hit rough patches, bumps, heartaches, problems. We learn in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 26 that King Uzziah had a reign in Judah that was long and prosperous. He gave success to the people of God, but they didn't handle it well. In fact, the success that God had granted them under Uzziah led to the people's apostasy that would actually end up bringing about their demise. And it was during the year that Uzziah died, we're going to read in just a moment, that Isaiah saw the Lord. So before we read this scripture, how many of you encountered the glory of God in some of the worst moments, in some of the darkest days? You beheld the worst news you've ever heard. 
And all of a sudden, God became tangible. He became real. You knew his presence was there. And part of the reason for that is when tragedy, difficulty, pain, all those things strike us, though none of us would wish for it, what happens when those things take place? It breaks and chips off the facade that's around our life so that all of a sudden there's no pretense left. There's no pretense. That's a lot of what you saw Sunday and witnessed and being part of people that decided that, that the pretense is gone, that I'm not, I, 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 it's all being stripped away. And so because of that, now am I, and now only am I ready to really encounter the Lord. So that's how we pick up this story when we see this vision in Isaiah chapter 6. And it says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, and each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. If the glory of God is described in this passage and you look at verses 2 through 4, if His train filled the temple, how immense must God be? Our descriptions in this passage can't even reach the hem of His robe. Um, we see a fire that comes down here. There was a fire that as you look in, and read in this passage, you also remember in Genesis chapter 3, there were burning swords that would guard the garden. In Exodus chapter 3, there was a bush that was consumed with fire when Moses was called. The fire in 1 Kings 18 uh, consuming the sacrifice. We're going to study that this coming Sunday. And the word seraph, literally the word seraph means the burning one. And they cried out, holy, holy, holy. That is a hymn that many of you are familiar with. And it is one of the hymns that I think um, we need to pay very careful attention to because I don't know that we are ever emulating the worship of heaven more than we are when we cry those three words. We've been told in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that that is what is going to be cried in heaven by the angels, by the saints, by the elders over and over again. Holy, holy, holy. Why three times? Three times it represents perfection. God is perfect. God is perfect. God is perfect. We are saying that over and over and over again. And it says the whole earth is full of His glory. Um, in other words, nothing is ordinary. We plod through our routines, but we become in danger of idolatry when we don't really see how incredible it is that God is in everything. 
And if we have a wrong view of God, we then have a wrong view of everything. Right theology leads to right living. Right theology leads to the right commitments. Right theology leads to discipleship. Right theology, when we say theology, don't let that be a dry word. What is theos? The the word theos is what? God. Logi. If you say if you say biology, what is biology the study of? Bio meaning life, the study of life. When we say theology, we are saying the study of God. If that becomes dry and boring, it is because somebody has an inaccurate and unbiblical view of who God is. How immense and miraculous and holy and wonderful that God truly is. So the earth is full of His glory. Um, it is, it is unfortunate sometimes when we diminish our view of God so that people feel better about themselves. In other words, um, and, and this has been asked by philosophers, people will often ask, did God create man or did man create God? Now think about that question for just a moment. Did God create man Or did man create God? Um, They showed a video clip to our Disciple Now group this week um, of an interview that Stephen Colbert had done. And he was talking to this comedian who's an atheist. And and the point that the comedian made, he said, said, look, I'm an atheist. He said, uh, he asked Colbert, which I wouldn't, hold Stephen Colbert up as an example of a believer by any stretch of the imagination. But he asked Colbert, he said, now don't you believe in one God? And Colbert said, well, I believe in, you know, three, three persons, but, but, but one God. And he said, well, you know, most people believe, you know, it's, there, there's beliefs that there's actually 400 gods out there, which he was actually off on that because even just the Hindus believe in hundreds and hundreds. So there's literally thousands or 10,000s of gods that are believed in over the course, especially if you look anthropologically over the course of, or historically over the course of human history, even now in societies, there's thousands upon thousands of gods that people believe in. But he made this point. He said, the only difference in you and me is, is that, and and he said there was 400. He said, you believe in one. I just don't believe, he said, I don't believe in 400. You don't believe in 399. His point was that you've just picked a God. There's gods all over the place. You've picked one. And what makes you think that you're right? I don't think that any of you are right. So here's the point. God of the Bible, there is a marked difference in that God in every other God because every other God is fashioned by humankind. So God, so God is made by man when we talk about any form of an idol. But when we're talking specifically about the God of heaven, it, begin, it, it has to define us instead of us defining who he is. Why this is a danger in many churches, and many churches have lost a vision of the glory of God, is because we have diminished the holiness of God so that God seems more relatable. And I think that that is a dangerous apostasy. When you are 
presenting a God to someone who is more palatable to them, more friendly to them, more going to meet the needs that they want, that's going to satisfy their curiosities, that's going to be there to break in case of emergency, that's going to be a divine buddy, that's going to help them to get into heaven, that's going to get them out of tights, that's going to rescue them from financial problems, that's going to heal their sicknesses and their diseases and make their kids act right and that they are going to have the right friendships and they're going to get the right jobs. There are a lot of places that I think we need to be very careful because what we're witnessing in our society is it is not the God of the Bible that is being peddled. It is a genie in a bottle. And that is a little G God. So it is very possible for a place that calls itself a church and even uses the name God and even uses terms like Jesus and may even talk about the cross and may even sing similar songs that if God is presented as anything less than holy, 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 as righteous and wrathful and just and a God of vengeance and a God of righteousness and purity and holiness, then what is being preached is a modern day idolatry that is no different from the Baalism that we're studying in 1 Kings. The difference is, is that it is more seductive because you use the same terms, but you define it different. Let me stay with me for just a moment if I lost you there. When we talk about the kingdom of cults that exist in our day, the reason that cults are so dangerous is they borrow terminology from Christians. They use terms like the cross. They use terms like salvation. They use the name of Jesus and implement those so that when you hear them, you only hear the similarity. Well, it is no different if a church or a so-called church uses the name of Jesus but does not, not present the entire biblical description and definition of who he is because if that is presented what happens to people people say well if we just present God people are going to feel better about themselves no they are not they are not going to feel better about themselves if you lift up a vision of God how do I know that because I just read Isaiah 6 did, did you read Isaiah didn't have a vision of God and say, boy, my self-esteem is sure is doing better. Did you find that any? But you know what? After seeing a vision of God, I feel better about myself. No. In fact, it was just the opposite. What did Isaiah believe when he saw a vision of God? He said, I'm going to die. That was his response. I am going to die. Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. If God is heralded as glorious and righteous, it will be the exact opposite of what health and wealth and prosperity teachers say that God is here to do. It will be the exact opposite of what the seeker-sensitive movement seeks to do when they teach about God. It is the exact opposite opposite because what they would tell you is if you meet God that all of a sudden in meeting him what's going to take place all of your dreams are going to come true you're going to be happier and healthier what I would tell you is is that if you encounter the God of scripture the very first thing that's going to happen in your life is you ought to be scared to death
There is not one vision of God that takes place in Scripture that people weren't scared to death. Even when they encountered angels, I think it's important. Those are representatives of God. These seraphs that flew. These are representatives of God, and when people saw them, they immediately thought they were going to be killed. And so when we come into worship, it's not that we don't need to appreciate that God loves us, because we certainly do, but you can't fully understand or even partially understand how much God loves you till you understand how holy He is and how unholy you are. So when I grasp that, now my appreciation for God's love for me is so much more than would have ever been had God only been presented as some divine buddy. Is that making sense? Are y'all... Y'all tracking with me? I know it's late on a Wednesday. It, it, I think that's an important point to make about worship. We need to exalt God as holy in a way that we see our own depravity when we see who He is. So that we're not any more worried about our opinions of ourselves. What matters is where we stand with God. There's a sentence in your notes here that says, we are not basically nice folks with an unfortunate tendency to mess up. I think most people, if you ask them, are you a good person? How do you think most people would answer that question? If you were just to ask the people that you know, if we did a man on the street thing, if we just went to the mall or went to Walmart, and we just asked, just walked up to people and say, would you, would you say that you're a, a good person? Would you say that you're a pretty good person? What do you think most people would say? Yeah. I mean, I'm not in prison. Um, I can, I've met with couples before, and, and, and sometimes you have one of these, like, moments where, and this is why I know I'm not called to full-time counseling. I'd last about two weeks. I mean, I, I, I just, I don't have the, I don't know that I have the empathy for that over and over and over again. But, but I can remember having this conversation and, 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 and meeting, and, and I remember this guy specifically saying, she doesn't have anything to complain about. There's a roof over her head. I don't beat her. I don't run around on her. And I'm not addicted to dope. I never forget this. Because I'm looking at him going, well, good job. You don't beat her. You don't, you're not a drug addict. Or, and, and you're wanting credit? And I think that's exactly how most people would answer in Walmart. Are you a pretty good person? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean I'm not in prison now. Right? Because you're talking to me. Uh, There's a whole lot worse people. I mean, I watch cops. There's a lot worse people than me, right? I mean, I'm not... I mean, I know who my kids are. I take care of them. I mean, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I only cuss when I'm really mad. Right? I mean, I like to drink a little beer and have a little good time, you know. And I, you know, probably go some places and do things. But I mean, I'm a pretty good guy. And there's a lot of people that believe they're pretty good that are pretty damned. And here's why. Because anybody that understands the gospel, anybody in here, 
If anybody comes up to you and asks you, do you think you're a good person? I hope that you have a vision of the angel of death coming at you. If somebody asks you that and you answer any other way than what I'm about to tell you, maybe just my bald head like just going off in your mind. Oh, Brother Larry, kill me if he heard me say that. No. The answer is no. And some of you are even offended right now. You are not good people. You're not. You say, well, I'm pretty good. If you are, it's because God's done something in you. You're rotten. And I think, how, how arresting would it be to walk up to somebody by the Cinnamon Toast Crunch in Walmart and they ask you, they said, do you think you're a pretty good person? You said, no, I'm rotten to the core. I'm rotten to the core. I imagine you get some attention then, or either they'd run, right? I'm rotten to the core. Somebody may say, why do you say that? Because I beheld the glory of God, and I have seen one that is righteous, and I've seen one that is holy, and I've seen one that is perfect, and there is a God, and I'm not Him. You can't get saved until you have that realization, until you know that. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And then we begin to see that he's touched. He's atoned for. And in this, in this moment, that is the only option that could have happened. He couldn't receive grace until he beheld glory. And this grace that flows from his glory is necessary to be clean. And this is one of the things I think in my, if God doesn't come back and grants me the privilege to be able to continue to preach for a little while longer. I think in my senior days of ministry, one of the aspects of God that I want to magnify even more than I did in my younger days of ministry is to help people to see just how majestic and beautiful He is because in those moments, we are not highlighting how great man is. We're not talking about how skilled you are and how wonderful you are and how competent you are and how good looking you are. No, we're talking about how brilliant God is and majestic God is and beautiful God is and holy God is and like moths to a flame, you're drawn to that. Not because somebody told you you're great but because somebody told you they could introduce you to a great God that's the difference in the gospel and some petty cheap version of idolatry that's peddled around the world and so we see his great we can't see his grace until we behold his glory and then when we behold his glory and then we receive his grace then and only then are we ready to serve um I love this passage because all of this happens and then God asks a question. Who can I send? Who will go for me? And, I, and what does Isaiah say? We, we, we use this all the time in missions. Here I am, send me. It's a great passage for missions. It's just unfortunate that we don't preach the first part of that. Because before you should ever be sent on missions, before you should ever teach a Sunday school class, before you should ever work with kids, you should have beheld the glory of God. 
You should have been convicted of your sin. You should have repented and understood that you were a person of unclean lips and you live among a people of unclean lips. You ought to be touched by the purifying, justifying work of Jesus, cleansed of your sin, and then and only then are you ready to serve. We don't tell people, hey, you ought to go serve. And this is another reason why I think churches are so unhealthy. Because we look at people and we say, well, they're pretty sharp. Let's get them to teach. They're lost. Lost people teaching because they've got a quick wit? That's the theology of hell. We ought to let them... Oh, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this in church. You need to let them sing. I'm telling you, they are fantastic. They're hellbound. And you want them to lead me in worship? No. You ought to know Jesus before you sing about Jesus and certainly before you ask somebody else to sing with you about Jesus. Service should always be preceded by beholding the glory of God, conviction of sin, salvation, and then and only then are you ready to serve God. And if we put the cart before the horse, is it any wonder why we end up with a damning theology that pervades churches because we have promoted people based on man's resume rather than God's qualifications? Does that make sense? I think we've got to be so careful and the question should not be, well, let's ask, and this is how most of the time we do it, tell us what you think your spiritual gift is. Well, that's an important question. We don't want you doing things that are outside of your gift. But that is a dumb question to ask before we ask this. When did you behold the glory of God? When were you convicted of your unrighteousness? When did you come to the realization that you're a son of iniquity and a child of the devil? When did you recognize that you needed Christ and that without Him you were hellbound? When did the grace of God so overcome you that you are now recognizing that the only reason you want to serve is because how what He did for you? And when we start to view things that way, all of the sudden, the service changes because our biggest qualification is not that God gave me a beautiful set of vocal cords. I can name hundreds of people that I love to hear sing that are going to hell. I mean, I like a lot of artists that aren't Christian. They're good singers. You can't deny that. There's a lot of people that are excellent speakers, way better than I'll ever think about being. Fantastic, wonderful, can get up and awe a crowd. That doesn't mean we need to give them a pulpit, right? And so we need to be people that before we do anything else, we understand what? That the glory of God alone, sola Dei Gloria, is the guiding principle behind worship. And I've told you this thousands upon thousands of times, but I'm going to say it again tonight. People always talk about the purposes of the church. When Rick Warren years ago wrote that book, The Purpose Driven Life, and people just bought it like crazy. Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church. And none of those purposes do I have any issue with. I think they're all valid biblical purposes. But I think we misunderstand all of the purposes if we don't understand that the church really only has one purpose. One. Now, a Southern Baptist, most people are going to say, I know what you're going to say. It's the Great Commission. 
the one overarching, number one priority of the church is worship. Why? Because you can't evangelize anybody before you've worshiped. You can't disciple anybody before you've worshiped. You can't be a steward before you've worshiped. Nothing can happen until you've worshiped. So are we worshipers? One of the things I'm thankful for at First Baptist Church of Summit is that when I look towards Sundays and every time that we meet together is that I have the privilege of coming alongside a group of people who desire to behold the glory of God. It is a consuming desire in your heart and in your life and in this church. And for that, I am eternally, eternally thankful. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you because it is your glory alone that drives us. Lord, we are thankful as we have studied these solas that you gave us your word, that scripture alone is the authority over our lives, that God, you have bestowed your grace and it is by grace alone that we can be saved, nothing of ourselves. That Lord, by what you've done in our lives, you've given us the ability to place our faith in you, that we may have faith that saves, a true saving faith. And that Jesus, you alone, your work on Calvary and is your identity as the most high son of God is where our salvation lies. So Lord, because of every one of those things and so much more, Lord, it is sola de gloria to your glory alone. So may all that we do and all that we are be consumed and obsessed in magnifying you. Lord, may we join with the psalmist when we say, come magnify the Lord with me. May we exalt his name together. May that be our story and may that be our song. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.